0: We've been, uh, I invite you actually, b- before I just do a little quick review, To uh, you could go ahead and turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10 we'll be reading. Mark chapter 8. As you're turning there, just to quickly review, we've been going through a sermon series uh, entitled Love Walked Among Us. Uh, it's based on a book by Paul Miller. There's several copies that we still have. They're free. You could take one on the way out. Um, of the book that he wrote called Love Walked Among Us, where we he looks at the ministry of Jesus and how he loved. And that's really what we're doing in this sermon series. We're looking at the ministry of Jesus and how he loved with the goal of experiencing him in the scriptures and his love and his compassion for, for us and for our world so that we might embody him to the world around us. We've been kind of operating on one foundational principle which is this, how you view God equals how you treat others. If you, view, if you think that God is somebody who ignores you, that will affect how you treat other people. If you think somebody, like, God is somebody who is angry with you, then that will affect how you treat other people. We've been exploring that as we've especially been uh, the last couple times uh, I've preached looked at a couple parables. parable of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the prodigal son. Um, today we're actually going to kind of pivot a little bit and begin to look at Jesus' miracles. And one of the things that we're going to kind of keep on the same principle, but I want to kind of uh, take a twist to it and say this, the foundational principle is also true. How you think God views the world will affect how you interact with the world. How you, what you believe about how God sees the world and interacts with the world will affect how you interact with the world. So we've, uh, we're, Mark chapter 8, coming to, just to give you a little brief context, Jesus has been uh, moving through his ministry, and he has been doing a lot of healing, a lot of miraculous works. He's been healing the sick. Um, he's been casting out demons. Um, he's been doing a, a lot of healing as we come f- to this passage in Mark chapter 8. And he, once again, performs a miracle. Let's read about it in his ministry. He says, uh, Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. In those days when again a, crowd, a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to, him, t- said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How could one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanthath. This is the word of the Lord. Praise to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for speaking to us and for inviting us through your word into the life, life with you and into the life of your kingdom. I pray that we would be able to not only just observe your word, but that we would receive this invitation that you have to life with you and life in your kingdom. And I pray that we would be empowered and mobilized to live, live as a follower of you. I pray that you would inspire us by your ministry, by what you are at work doing. Lord, we pray that your word would be the power of salvation for all who believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Many of you, uh, raise your hand, have you ever been on a mission trip before? Yeah? Maybe maybe if you didn't grow up in the church, maybe you've been on some sort of trip where you've uh, either in a local or outside overseas where you've gone and you've served with an organization, uh, you've served kind of a, a community maybe that have has been under-resourced or uh, impoverished. Um, I've been on, as a pastor, I've been on Lots of mission trips, and I want to tell you a little bit about one of the mission trips that I went on about eight years ago when I was a minister in Brooklyn. We had a partner uh, in, uh, with a ministry, at, with MTW, a ministry in um, uh, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And I want to tell you about this trip that I took because it's probably by far one of the best mission trips I've ever been on. Um, not because of anything that I did there, but because of some of the experiences that I had with the people there. Uh, the ministry there is called the ACT Project, the AIDS Care and Treatment Project. Addis Ababa has some of the sickest people in the world uh, concentrated in one area, and it has some of the poorest people in the world concentrated in kind of the same area. And this ministry has gone and set up community clinics to really address a lot of the poverty and the sort of the sickness that are in that area. And so the, the ministry really focuses on helping, especially those that have been infected by HIV and AIDS. And so I went as a minister along with a team of medical professionals. um, And this clinic, while we were there, we were there for about two weeks. While we were there, we we saw over 450 um, beneficiaries, patients of the clinic that came. um, And I was actually responsible to do a lot of counseling while I was there. And I saw over 150 people uh, that I did counseling with at the clinic. In addition to that, we went on home visits where we would go out in the field and we would go to the different homes of people. And let me tell you about one of the people that I met there. There was a woman by the name of Faquerte. uh was attending a Bible study that we did in uh, this neighborhood called Suki. She was a beneficiary of the project. And, and just to tell you a little bit about, this will tell you a little bit about some of the, the, the poverty and, and the background of, of uh, the, the women who live in this area. She was married when she was nine years old, uh, and she had her first child when she was 11 years old. She had recently become a widow and most likely contracted HIV from her husband uh, before he died. And now when I was meeting with her at that time, when I was meeting with her in her home, she was just dealing with constant pain. She had a daughter who was mentally ill, um, and she was constantly dealing with the fact uh, that she could not provide food for her family um, or enough income to even stay in her house. Um, And I remember being in her house and like being in a moment where like she was weeping and I was sitting with her, with a translator, and I was just left with this question. How is this woman's needs going to be met? Like who am I in this place to even participate in this? Her needs are overwhelming. She's dealing with physical pain all the time. Her poverty is beyond imagination. Her pain is beyond what I can even imagine That could be that I could bear. How could I participate in helping her? Like it just seems so desolate. I got to this point. Like, did you hear the disciples? They asked that question. They asked this question that I think a lot of us ask when we see a need. We kind of have this sort of need of where we 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 might see a need. Somebody's like in need, and we think whether they be in poverty or they're hungry. whatever. How can I possibly, maybe you're so overwhelmed. Have you ever been in a situation like this? You're so overwhelmed by the person in need. You may ask that question, how can I help? How can this person's need be met? And I I was really drawn to that question in the the text of the disciples, because the disciples are sitting there, and it's not just 4,000 people. It's probably 20,000 people that are there, including women and children, that are sitting there, and they have been following Jesus for three days, and they are hungry. They're just simply hungry, and they're left with this question, how are we going to d- deal with this need? And that's where really what I want this sermon to address, and I want to address this in a couple ways. Um, first of all, I want to address it kind of because I think in this text we see there's an, in- an initiation and there's an invitation. An initiation and an invitation. First, I want to talk about the initiation. It starts in the very beginning of uh, the text here. When it's not just the the disciples' question, we begin with actually Jesus'—what he sees. He sees the crowd, not of 4,000 people, probably 20,000 people that are following. Can you imagine? 20,000 people that are following him that are gathered together, and they have nothing to eat. And we see the heart of Jesus immediately in response to that. Did you hear what he said? He says, I have compassion for these people. And he doesn't just have compassion— it isn't just, it's not a feeling he just has. It's something that he immediately acts on, right? That's the one thing that we need to know about the heart of God. Like, God has a heart that is for you, but he doesn't just have a feeling for you. He acts on it. He acts on his compassion. That's what we see Jesus doing here. He, says, he, he doesn't just say you have compassion. He knows their situation. He's, they've been with him for three days. They've had nothing to eat, and he even thinks about where they're going, he doesn't even think about where they are. He thinks about where they're going. If I'll send them away home now, they'll have nothing to eat. They're going to faint on the way home. I've got to take care of these people. And really what I, I, I want to just pause here for a second and say, one of the things that we see in the scriptures as we, as we in this text, but as we zoom out and we see through all the scriptures, from, the, from creation, through the Old Testament, through the law, through the prophets, through the Psalms, is we see God's heart for the poor and for the needy. And it's the same throughout all the scriptures. That God's heart for the poor is that he is close to the brokenhearted. That's what Psalm 34, verse 18 says. Jesus is close to the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. He's close to those that are in need. His heart is, longs for them to be uh, met. But just to uh, bear with me here for a second, I want to even uh, give you an example from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verses 17 through 18. Listen to what he says. This is what Moses says in the law. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and the Lord of lords is the great the mighty the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. There were laws in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that were directed towards the poor, towards the stranger, towards the orphan, towards the widow, laws were given because what does the law do? It shows the heart of God. God cared for the poor so much that he put it in his law that his people would care for him. But they didn't. <laughs> Israel forgot the poor, and so he sends the prophets. He sends the prophets throughout, and I'm just just bear with me here. I'm going to read Zechariah, chapter seven, verses eight, starting in verse eight. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments and show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor, and let no one of you devise evil against one another in your hearts. It says, But they refused to pay attention, the people of God, and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. This is like so much the story of God's people throughout the scriptures is that we see the heart of God and the people of God turn away and don't listen. This is why when Jesus comes, he shows through his ministry, through his healing ministry, that he cares for the widow, the poor, and the stranger. He cares for those that are impoverished, and that's what we see him doing in his ministry. We see him providing miracles so the question is what is like with this miracle that we see here how are we to understand it how are we to understand this miracle and here's what i want to so often i think we come to the scriptures and we look at it as kind of like a model for ministry like here's kind of if i just kind of follow one two three with how jesus did things then i can like jesus is an example to follow and that's very much true in lots of ways but what's going on here is much more than that this is not a model for ministry this is a miracle and what's happening here is that Jesus is initiating this kingdom, the kingdom of God on earth. What the, what the people of God could not do, what Israel could not do, Jesus comes and he initiates, he brings the kingdom of God to bear on earth. And what that means is that in the coming of Jesus, that's when the reversal of the fall happens. All the brokenness, all the pain of the world, in Jesus' coming, it's reversed. It's reversed. And he begins to work towards renewal, the renewal of all things. That's what the scriptures kind of point us to even towards the end, is that it's going to be working towards the renewal of all things. And so what I want, you to, what I want to proclaim to you is that when you read about Jesus' miracles like this one in, uh, in Mark chapter 8, what we're seeing is the breaking in of the kingdom of God on earth to bring renewal, to bring flourishing to the world. And that's what Jesus did in His ministry, and that's what He initiated. I love the way um, Cornelius Plantinga talks about it in his book, "Not the Way It's Supposed to Be." With this quote here, I'll read it for you. If you can put it up here, you can read it along with me. He talks about well, this idea of this this idea of shalom, this old this Old Testament often uh, word used in Jewish custom. He says this. this This is what flourishing or shalom is. It's the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which needs are satisfied and natural gifts fully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder at its creator, as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. The way things ought to be. When Jesus is, brings his ministry, especially his miracles in, he's reversing it and showing us the way things ought to be. Not only showing us, he's bringing it to bear on earth. And so therefore... He initiates this in his ministry, in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. And I didn't come here just to proclaim that to you. I want to actually talk for quite a while now, for the rest of my sermon, on how we can live that out. Because it's not just this proclamation, this is what Jesus initiates. He initiates his kingdom on earth to bring renewal and flourishing, but he invites you and I to participate in it. And so I want to get really practical with you for a moment here about how you and I are invited to participate in this. It gets back to that question with, in Mark chapter 8. If you you're stuck with Mark chapter 8, when the disciples in verse 4, they say, they get to this point where they, they, they ask the same question I asked, how could one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And Jesus allows them to participate in, he, he, he actually involves them in his work. He didn't have to do that. He involves them. He's like, I want you to take this bread and I want you to go set it before them. I want you to go take this fish and I want you to go set it before the people. They were, they were participating in setting out. They didn't have a lot. They didn't have anything. They, there's seven loaves and there's a few fish. They didn't have a lot to offer. They only had their doubts to offer. But Jesus still invited them in to participate in the work of the kingdom. So I want to really dig into. We talked about this kind of uh, a couple weeks ago or a few weeks ago when we talked about the parable of the prodigal. No, the parable of the good Samaritan. Excuse me. When I talked about this, I said compassion equals action. Right? You jump in. But. How do we, how do we jump in? <laughs> how do we take action? That's really what I wanna, like what is it like to have feet on the ground? And, and one of the things that I wanna go ahead and acknowledge, a lot of our Mercy team uh, went through this last spring of 2021, uh, this, this uh, Focus Community Strategies is a partner that we have. Uh, and there's, we went through this, uh, this curriculum called Seeking Shalom. So some of the things I'm about to mention are straight from this curriculum Seeking Shalom because I thought it was so helpful. So the, the first thing I want to encourage us to do is, like, when you think, how can I help? One of the things that I want to encourage us, we have to begin to take small steps into how we can begin to work towards the flourishing and renewal of all things. How can we do that? The first step is, I, want you, I think we have to look and we have to listen. Sometimes I think we, we, we want to assess the needs of the community around us, but sometimes we get that wrong. Sometimes we bring our own assumptions into what we think the problems are in our neighborhood and the needs are in our neighborhood when really we're not looking and we're not listening. So I want you to actually just to to listen in for a second for a couple stories I'm going to tell you uh, from from this Seeking Shalom. You know, sometimes we can assume we know what the needs are and we end up just kind of compounding the problems with more programs. I want you to listen to, uh, this is a story from from Julia Dinsmore. She was an author. She grew up uh, in, in an impoverished neighborhood, and she ended up um, writing a book called My Name is Child of God, Not Those People. <laughs> My Name is Child of God, Not Those People. Listen to her story for a second. She talks about this. She was like, uh, she, she, in a video uh, from the Seeking Shalom program and in her book, she talks about how systemic barriers are built into some of the safety nets um, that programs that, that, that she experienced in some of the programs that were being offered to her. And she actually kind of felt more, in, by, by experiencing those programs, she felt more entrapped in her poverty. She gave an example of this. She was trying to get out of her poverty on her own, so she applied uh, for, to, she got into school and she applied for a Pell Grant. But immediately when she got the Pell Grant, she was cut off from her food stamps. And so she got to go to school. She got to, to get the Pell Grant, but then she couldn't feed her kids. And so she was trying to get out of poverty. She tells a story about this. She was trying to take a step out on her own, but then she was had her feet cut out from underneath her. She couldn't feed her kids because she, she was cut off from food stamps. And she talks about a story about where a group of uh, of, uh of her friends went from Minneapolis down to Congress, and they were able to actually get Congress to give uh, people on welfare a grant of $1,000 so they could own $1,000 worth of assets. And she talks about how this, the desire was simply just to be able to work out of poverty and not to kind of what she described, Take the, she said nobody could take the quantum leap out of poverty. So she had to go with her friends to go to Congress to get this act of Congress to give $1,000 worth of assets. But I think what was significant was the fact that she described it as this, she could never make the quantum leap. There was this sort of orbit that she was in that she couldn't get out of. And it was interesting listening to her story about how poverty is, sometimes we kinda wanna oversimplify it and kinda make it all about, if I just give, you know, you don't have something, you don't have stuff, I have stuff, let me just give you stuff. We kind of make it all about kind of material. But one of the things that I, I think that we have to understand when we look and we listen is that poverty is a, is much more complicated than that. There's much more involved than just you don't have stuff, I have stuff. I'm going to give you the stuff you don't have. There's a, if you actually look and li- if you actually stop and listen to the people who are receiving that stuff, they don't want it. Sometimes. <laughs> What are we to do? There's another story about uh, from, actually this is a woman, Stacey uh, Brungart. She actually coached me through um, some of the uh, material here. So this is a coach of mine. Um, she's a community development director at FCS, and she grew up in poverty. And she talks about this uh, as the best analogy for poverty. She calls, calls it a constant state of crisis and instability. She gives this example. She says, imagine being pushed off a cliff and at the last minute being pulled back off. That's what her life felt like every day. Imagine being pushed off a cliff, and then all of a sudden somebody drags you back off. That was this constant state of feeling the way she felt in poverty. She talked about the things that maybe you, and maybe for a person who's not in poverty, takes for granted. She gave examples like a flat tire. She gave examples like, hey, your child has an away game uh, that, that maybe you could take your child to. Somebody in poverty might, might, that might be a crisis for somebody in poverty, a flat tire, a child's away game. She talked about running out of milk, running out of diapers. Maybe I can just run to the market for a person in poverty. They can't do that. An unscheduled school project becomes overwhelming. In other words, there's so much Complexity to poverty that what I think you and I need to, to stop and look and listen. I want to invite you into that as we think about how we can bring flourishing to our neighborhood. We have to stop and listen to the people around us. Listen to their stories. Most of us kind of operate by what this... Um, Seeking Shalom calls the charity paradigm, which is not, it's not all bad, but this is kind of operates by the, what, what they call the charity paradigm, where it's true, the Bible invites us to provide for others in moments of need, which is true, right? The Bible invites for us invites us to provide for others in moments of need. This paradigm can be good, but it can also, as, as if we don't have the right understanding of poverty and the complexity and the complication of it all, it can actually maybe end up um, being problematic at times. The second thing I want to encourage us to do is not only look and listen, but um, we need to learn. We need to learn more about the systems in which our, our city contribute to poverty. For example, um, I was just looking up, you know, this is a text about hunger. I was looking up about uh, a lot of the facts and stats about food insecurity in our city. I'm just going to kind of tell you a little bit about food insecurity. To define food insecurity, first, food insecurity refers to USDA's measure of lack of access at times. So lack of access to enough food for an active healthy, active, healthy life for all household members and limited limited or uncertain availability of nutrition, nutritionally adequate adequate foods i'll say that again it's a lack of access to enough food for an active active healthy life or a limited or uncertain availability to uh, nutritionally adec- nutritionally adequate foods so one in eight people in georgia have food insecurity one in eight people one in six children so that means kids your classmates i mean parents You will have kids in your your classes, in your your child's classes, that are dealing with food insecurity. One in 13 seniors are food insecure. That was alarming to me. That's alarming, is it not? What are we going to do about that? How are we going to help? How can Village Church be a part of seeking the flourishing, working against food insecurity? And here's where, um, here's where I want to kind of move into, and this is not by any means, like this is just a first few steps that I think we can take, that we can take to, to not only look and listen and learn, but actually make a step and take action to help. This is what uh, Seeking Shalom gives us a couple of, of, uh, uh, um, of applications here. Based on not the charity paradigm, but what we're going to call the Shalom paradigm. The charity paradigm, again, says the Bible invites us to provide for others in moments of need, which is true, but it's much bigger and broader than that. The shalom paradigm says, much like we've been learning from in Mark chapter 8, the shalom paradigm, the Bible invites us to partner with God in the renewal of all things. And that's what I think Village Church, we need to do. I think so often we can think through like, oh, what is a need and how can I respond to that? And that's how I've operated a, a lot of my life What's, and, and the churches I've been involved in. What's a need? How can I kind of provide for this moment of need? But really, I think we need to step back. How Village Church, how can we be a part of partnering with God in the renewal of all things? Because that's what Jesus is doing in his kingdom, in his miracles. He's bringing his kingdom on earth. For the, he's reversing the fall and He's renewing all things. And so the, the vastness of what we're called to be a part of is working towards flourishing. So here's a couple, of, uh, a couple of steps, first of all, that I think are really beneficial and that we can take immediately. The first step, I think, is, is uh, this invitation to mutuality. It's the word I want you to, to mutuality. What does that mean? What do I mean by mutuality? Well, uh, one of the things that they talk about in this curriculum is that when you look about at, at, at how the kingdom of God is described in, in the Gospels, it's often described as a banquet, as a feast. If you look at Luke 14, the great banquet, it's these, this feast where everybody's invited to participate together. The great banquet in Revelation, everybody's participate, invited to participate together at the same table, sharing the same food sitting across the table in equal partnership together. Flourishing means, this mutuality means that there's an interdependence in the way that we relate with our neighbors. So in other words, so often I come to somebody and I say, hey, I, I kind of come and think, what do I have that I can give you? Oh, good, I can give you something, and that makes me feel like I, could, I, I gave to you, so I'm serving what I would encourage us to do is say, no, it's more than that. <laughs> when we go to Brandon Towers, it's not just, hey, what can I give to my elderly neighbor? No, I, we need them. We need a relationship with them. What can they give to me? What do they have that they can give to me? And what it begins to do is it affirms the image of God in everybody, that actually it's not just me giving you something again and again and again, it's actually that we can grow in an interdependent relationship and that person is not just a recipient of goods, but they are a participant. They're not just a recipient, but they're a participant together. And so I want to encourage you, how can, with the relationships you have, instead of kind of having this sort of approach towards people of, and this is for me too, <laughs> instead of having this approach towards people of, what can I give to you? What are the goods I can give to you? What can I, knowledge, can I give to you? How can I, how can we be in partnership together as an interdependent? How, what can you know? And, and what skills do do you have, or what skills can be explored in, in, in this other person? And, and you know, I tell you the story about Fakerte uh, in my uh, my time in Ethiopia. I also had the best meal I've ever had in Ethiopia. And let me tell you why it was the best meal I ever had because there was a woman, and I've, I went through my journals this week, and I could not find, I can't figure remember her name. But this woman, she attended the Bible study that we had in, this, in, the, in Suki, and she invited me up to up, literally up a hill, like up a big hill to her home for a meal. And I said, sure, I would love to go with you. She had a broken leg, and she was climbing up. It was like probably an elevation of a, several hundred feet, I, I literally tripped on the way up, and she did not. That's how, that's how like, tumultuous the, the trail was. We got to her home, very humble home, over hot coals. She made me popcorn and coffee. And it was the best meal I ever had. Do you know why? Because we shared it together. She shared her resources with me. It wasn't just me helping her. It was her sharing her life with me. There was an interdependence going on there. I received from her, and it was the best meal I ever had in my life. I could still taste that coffee. I could still taste that popcorn. i seen her bent down with her broken leg making this for me. That's hospitality. And that's what interdependence requires is hospitality, that we're opening up our lives and our homes to live lives of interdependence together. That we're not just seeing people as recipients, but we're seeing ourselves together as participants. So mutuality. Second thing I want to uh, mention here is, is that we're moving towards uh, what is holistic. Flourishing means that, and what I mean by this is not just that, it, that there's an interdependence, but there is a comprehensive approach to poverty. That we don't just see it as kind of a single issue. Oh, you don't have goods, therefore I need to give you goods. It's actually, there's a comprehensive approach that, it, that there, there's so many factors and variables that contribute to poverty. There's education and housing and employment and healthcare. And to be able to kind of learn and see how those things work together to contribute to the poverty in our neighborhoods. And that takes work. That takes work as, as an individual for you to do and as a, as a church for us to do. That we would be learning how all of those things relate together so that we can identify the areas where we need to work, so we can begin to learn. That's, I think that's the, the challenge is for us to learn, the, that to take that comprehensive approach. But not only that, for you to kind of think through yourself: what skills do you have? What experiences do you have that you can kind of bring to the table? And as we begin to work on this, I think that we can begin to kind of continue working towards the flourishing of our neighborhoods and our city. I want to uh, close in in part with this uh, Walter Brueggemann quote. I'm not sure if you you have that or not. Walter Brueggemann says this. He says, God does not delight in worldly wisdom, power, or money. God delights in neighborhood, sorry, neighborly fidelity that is busy constructing infrastructures of shalom. I'm going to say that again. God delights in neighborly fidelity that is busy constructing infrastructures of shalom. How can you, how can we take every, take little steps to begin working on building infrastructure? First, it starts with having that paradigm. That's really what my, my hope is, that number one from this, this sermon that you get, that through Jesus' miraculous ministry, he's bringing his kingdom on earth. And through his death and resurrection, his kingdom is at work. Boots on the ground, and he and that's part of what it means to be part of the church. He invites you and I into that work for the flourishing and the renewal of all things. So friends, I want to invite you to partner with him in working towards the flourishing of our city and our world. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray that you would give us wisdom and enable us to begin to and continue to take steps towards the flourishing of your city here in Atlanta. We do pray that you would, would, uh, would help us. Thank you, Jesus, for your miraculous ministry, that you are a God who your heart breaks over poverty. And not only does it break, but that you actually are renewing and bringing flourishing, Lord, so that we might all sit at table together and enjoy your fellowship with you. We pray that you would come, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.